where we left off in the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have your Bibles or your app, can you turn or tap on over to Matthew chapter 27? We're going to pick up in verse 26. And just keep moving right along from where David left off last week. Actually, we're going to pick up with one verse, the last verse that he covered. We're going to start right there and then keep going through this, this last day of Jesus' earthly ministry. Um, while he was, I guess, before he was killed. Because <laughs> he does have a ministry after he comes back and resurrects uh, later on. So I want us to pick, uh, right off where, where we left, pick, up, pick up where we left off in Matthew 27, 26. And in that passage, we read this. And then he, this is Pilate, released Barabbas to them, and after having Jesus flogged, handed him over to be crucified. Now David kind of went through how Barabbas' name was believed to be um, Jesus Barabbas, uh, basically. He was, his name was also Jesus, and they, he was a criminal, and they released the criminal and let him go and decided to crucify the, the innocent man. Um, Pilate says he washed his hands of it, and then Pilate just says, okay, Here's Barabbas, you get this criminal back, that's what you wanted. And he had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. Now, how many of you have seen the movie The Passion of the Christ? Anybody seen that? If you've watched that movie, you understand just how understated Matthew's account really is. He simply just says, okay, Jesus was flogged. That's it. When you think of a flogging, I don't know what you think of. Um, but after you watch that movie, you'll never think of it the same again. A Roman flogging utilized an instrument that the, the Greeks called a flagellum. Uh, it was a leather whip that had um, the, the leather straps were laced with pieces of bone or iron that were sharp. And uh, they were, in the Jewish tradition, there were Jewish floggings that were done with a stick, and you could lash somebody with a stick 39 times. There was a limit. It was 40 minus 1, 39 times. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul said he was actually uh, whipped several times, lashed several times by the Jews uh, that 39 times. With the Romans, there was no limit. They could flog somebody as long as they wanted to. And they would take this whip instead of a stick, and they would literally hit the person to tear those pieces of metal and bone in and then pull out. And Matthew simply says, Jesus was flogged. I'm not sure why Matthew is so abrupt in his account of what took place. Um, Matthew seems to skip over a lot of things that we might think are important details. And yet he focuses in on some other things that we think might be a little bit odd for details. But he simply just says that Jesus was flogged. Now, maybe, maybe it was because just the thought of trying to write down what he saw happen to his Savior was too much for him to consider. Imagine trying to describe that scene. I don't think you could do it. Perhaps it was because anybody who lived during the time that Matthew was writing would understand just exactly what a flogging was by the Romans. And you wouldn't need to paint the picture because they would know as soon as they heard that word. Or perhaps because... Matthew's goal was not to focus on the physical torment of Jesus, but rather to focus on what it fulfilled. So Matthew says simply, Pilate released Barabbas, had Jesus flogged, and then sent Jesus away to be crucified. And then in between the flogging and the crucifixion, there's another event that takes place. And we're going to kind of fly through some of these events together because I want you to see what Matthew is doing, the bigger picture of what Matthew is doing. So starting in verse 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the governor's residence, and they gathered the whole company around them. And they stripped Jesus of his clothes and dressed him in a scarlet robe. And they twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and placed a staff in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him. And then they took the staff back, and they kept hitting him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they stripped him of his robe, put on his own clothes, and led him away to crucify him. So Matthew goes from the courtyard of Pilate, and Pilate 
having Jesus flogged, to then the soldiers taking Jesus into a private part of Pilate's residence, the whole company of them, taking them in there, removing his clothes, and setting him up as a mock king. They put a royal robe on him. They made a crown. How many of you have seen that crown of thorns? You usually put it up on the cross. We don't know if he actually took that crown with him to the cross, um, but we do know that it was on his head at this point. They gave him a staff. Because if you're a king, you have to have your scepter, right? So he had a staff, he had a crown, he had his robe, and they knelt down to him and they mocked him. Now, usually you wouldn't give an enemy a weapon like a staff, but he'd just been flogged. There's not much he's going to do with that staff. And then after they're done mocking him, they take the staff back and they start hitting him on the head. And what was on his head? The crown. And they would beat the crown down into his head even more. And they spit on him. And they totally, totally just degraded him as a human being. And then when they were done having their fun, they had to take off the robe and put his own clothes on him because you couldn't have a naked person walking through the city of Jerusalem, though they would crucify him without his clothes on later on. They put his clothes back on him and they led him away to be crucified. The picture of these soldiers kneeling down before Jesus is one of those ironic images. They did it to mock him. They did it to make fun of him. They did it because they felt like they had authority over this man who was being killed for being the king of the Jews. However, we're reminded in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, that because of what Christ endured on the cross... God has given him a name above every other name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. But at that moment, it was all mockery and arrogance. They disgraced him. They beat him. They made fun of him. And Matthew gives us great detail on this section. And then he simply carries on and says, oh yeah, and they walked out to crucify him. Matter of fact, verses 32 and 33, it's like immediately as they were going out, out of the city, so they'd already walked through the city, they've gotten to the gates. As they were going out, they found a Cyrenian man named Simon, and they forced him to carry his cross. And then they came to the place of the skull, Golgotha, There's a lot of territory to cover from Pilate's palace through the city, past the gates, and up the hill. And Matthew just kind of fast-forwards through all that and just gets us right to the the scene where the crucifixion is going to take place. He doesn't focus on the streets. He doesn't focus on the crowds. He doesn't get into all the physical details. But he focused on this group of soldiers behind closed doors that did that thing to him. Let's continue on reading. So when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, they gave him wine mixed with gall to drink. But when he tasted it, he refused to drink it. After crucifying him, they divided his clothes by casting lots. Then they sat down and were guarding him there. And above his head, they put the charge against him in writing, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. And then two criminals were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Now, there's a lot of details Matthew could have focused on, right? Like, who's in the crowd? But but he didn't. Um, But he brings in some interesting things, like Jesus was offered wine with gall in it. Like, that's... Super significant. Remember, Matthew is a details guy. He doesn't bring up something unless he's got a reason for it. So why he chose to leave out people's reactions at this time or other things that were taking place, we don't really know why other than he wanted to focus on a few other things. Things that might seem a little bit unique to us. For instance, this wine with gall. Like, what is that all about? Well, If you remember anything about Matthew, we've been almost two years in the Gospel of Matthew. One of the things that we've mentioned is that part of Matthew's goal 
is to show people how Jesus is the fulfillment of scriptures about the Messiah. He's the Messiah who has fulfilled all the scriptures about the Messiah. It's not a mistake, and you can look at the scriptures and you can see Jesus in them. That's one of his goals. He started that in chapter 1. Make no mistake, that's what he's trying to bring out. So when Matthew makes the statement that Jesus was offered wine with gall, you're like, what is that all about, and why does that matter? Let me take you to Psalm 69, verses 16 through 21. Psalm 69 is esteemed as a messianic psalm, and it says this, Answer me, Yahweh, for your faithful love is good. In keeping with your abundant compassion, turn to me. Don't hide your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Answer me quickly. Come near to me and redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know the insults I endure, my shame and disgrace. You are aware of all my adversaries. Insults have broken my heart, and I am in despair. I waited for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but no one was found. Instead, they gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Do you see this passage in Psalm 69? Do you see what Matthew is alluding to? He's trying to show us that the very things that took place were predicted of the Messiah, even the gall and the wine. The psalm mentions insults and disgrace and enemy and God hiding his face. All of these are themes that you should be able to connect to this passage in Matthew. And then he brings up this thing, this king of the Jews. Can we take a moment to think about that? Because I think this is probably one of the greatest misnomers of the Gospels. Because the Jews rejected him as king. The king of the Jews could not be more ironic than as it is portrayed in Matthew's gospel. It was the demons who called Jesus the Son of God. It was the Gentile woman and the Gentile soldier who acknowledged him as the Son of God. After his resurrection, actually, after his crucifixion, it's a Roman guard who's going to first acknowledge him as the Son of God. In contrast, it was the Jews and the religious leaders who falsely accused and condemned Jesus, who betrayed him and mocked him and sentenced him to death. And in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is honestly more a king of the Gentiles than he is a king of the Jews. Not out of position or right that God has given him, for he was the king of the Jews in God's eyes. But in acknowledgement and acceptance, he was much more a king of the Gentiles. Which brings us to this concept of the Gentiles that we really have to focus on in this passage. Um, if you notice in, this, uh, in our passage that we've had in Matthew, there's this word they that gets repeated over and over and over again. Um, let's go back one. When they came to the place called Golgotha, who's they? Well, it would have been all the soldiers the guard with Jesus, and Simon, the Cyrene who had to carry the cross. There's this they that we never lose sight of in this entire passage, and I think this is one of the things Matthew is also trying to drive home. All throughout Matthew's gospel, he's shown how God's people have chosen to reject the Messiah, but those outside of God's family have chosen to accept him more readily than the Jews, who should have accepted him. It was the soldiers who arrived with Jesus and Simon at the place of the skull. It was the soldiers who offered Jesus some form of drugged wine, which he refused. It was the soldiers that crucified him. It was the soldiers that divided his clothes by casting lots. It was the soldiers that sat down to guard him. And it was the soldiers that put up the sign that said, King of the Jews. It was the soldiers that flocked Jesus. It was the soldiers who mocked Jesus, made the crown of thorns and spit on him and beat him over the head. And now it's the soldiers who have done all of these things that we have a focus on in this passage. Don't lose sight of the soldiers, because I believe this is one of the key things Matthew's trying to bring out in this passage. So we continue, verse 39. And those who passed by were yelling insults at Jesus as he's hanging on the cross next to two criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Those that passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads, 
saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying he saved others, but he cannot save himself. And he is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. If he takes pleasure in him, for he said, I am the son of God. And in the same way, even the criminals who were crucified with him taunted him. So Jesus is taunted by three groups, right? The crowds, the religious leaders, and the criminals. But I want you to focus in on a certain phrase. And it started with the crowds. If you are the son of God. Did you catch that phrase? Have you heard it anywhere before? Thinking through the Gospel of Matthew, has that phrase come up anywhere before? Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is baptized at the end of chapter 3. And in chapter 4, he goes off into the wilderness to be tempted. And in Matthew chapter 4, verses 3 through 4, we read this. The tempter approached Jesus. He was in the wilderness for 40 days. And the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And he answered, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the tempter didn't give up very quickly. The devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will give his angels orders concerning you. And they will support you with their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. And a third time, Satan tempted him. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. And he said to them, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. It was at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, before he actually started his earthly ministry. He was baptized, and then he went into the wilderness to be tempted. And the temptation was, if you are the Son of God, prove it. Now we are at the end of his earthly ministry. We're at the very last hours of his life, physical life on this earth. And the temptation is the same, isn't it? Three different groups mocking him, saying, if you are the Son of God, prove it. Had Jesus given in to the taunting? He even said in the garden, when Peter struck the, the ear of the servant, he said, listen, don't, don't start this war. Don't you think my father could bring in a host of angels and just wipe these guys all out? But that's not what the father has planned. Had Jesus given in to the taunting and said, okay, I'll come down from the cross and prove it, he would have been disqualified from what he came to do. The accuser is really good at trying to get people to do things that can even sound spiritual, that could even be motivated by a good cause, but not necessarily be the will of God. Jesus remained faithful and I guess the one big difference that I see between this tempting and the tempting in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry is this time Jesus just remained silent. He didn't quote scripture. Just like when he was accused in the temple, when he was accused um, by the high priest, he remained silent. And here's what we read. While all this is going on, Jesus is hanging on a cross there's people taunting him. They're questioning him. They're saying, listen, you say that you're the son of God, but look at you. Look at you. You've helped all these other people and you can't even help yourself. This is what God would do? And from about noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? 
When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and got a sponge filled with sour wine and put it on a stick and offered him a drink. But the rest said, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. But Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Darkness came over the land for three hours. That was certainly a supernatural thing. Um, The Passover took place um, during the time of a full moon, so it wouldn't be a lunar eclipse or a solar eclipse. I forget which one. I got that backwards. Um, So it wouldn't be that that the sun was being blocked out by the moon. Um, Darkness came over the land, and it fell over the whole land for three hours. Can you think of another event where darkness came over a land? Anybody? I'm going to keep quizzing you, so you might as well get ready, give you ready for it. What's another passage in our scriptures where darkness came over a land? I hear some, what's that? Exodus, the Exodus, yes. It was the ninth plague in the book of Exodus, just prior to the Passover. Exodus chapter 10, verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven and there will be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was a thick darkness throughout the land of Egypt for three days. One person could not see another, and for three days they did not move from where they were, yet all the Israelites had light where they lived. Now, there's some beautiful symbolism there, isn't there? The darkness over the land just before being freed through the sacrifice of a lamb, and then being taken into the promised land. We're going to talk about that just a little bit more here. What meal did Jesus celebrate with his disciples just before these events took place? The Passover. They were celebrating the events of the Exodus, of the Passover. And just prior to the Passover meal in Exodus was this ninth plague of darkness before they sacrificed a lamb and put the blood on the posts, the the blood that would protect them from death and lead them into life and out of slavery and into freedom as God's people. But it was darkness that predicated that, that was before that. And here we have Jesus on the cross, the Lamb of God being slain for the sins of the world, and just before he dies and his blood is truly shed completely, there is darkness over the land for three hours. I think it's also beautiful that in Exodus, it was darkness over the land for three days. I have news for you. The three days that Jesus was in the grave were three very dark days on this earth. Just as the Exodus led the people of God to freedom and life with God, so too the events of the cross will provide freedom and life to all who will trust and obey. However, there was another darkness that took place at this time. Jesus cried out these words, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And I'm going to say that this passage has truly been a very controversial passage. Um, I think it's controversial, especially when we try to probe into areas that we just cannot fully understand. This cry of Jesus is mentioned both in Matthew and in Mark, and I believe it accomplishes two things. Um, it's, it's my conviction that it shows the utter aloneness that Jesus felt. Psalm 69 quoted, said, God, don't turn your face away from me. Don't keep your face turned away from me. Look again to me. Um, Jesus felt abandonment from his own people. He came to the Jews first and then to the Greeks, and the Jews rejected him and sentenced him to death. His own disciples betrayed him, and denied knowing him and abandoned him. The only relationship Jesus had left was with his father. And as he hung on that cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? To forsake or to abandon is a word we have to wrestle with. (laughs) In every other instance in the New Testament, it means to desert or to leave. My God, my God, why have you left me? that makes some very uncomfortable challenges for us theologically, doesn't it? If Jesus is God, and he is, then how could God leave God? 
It's a challenge for sure. As a matter of fact, uh, Martin Luther, when he was meditating on this passage, he said, God forsaken of God, who can understand it? It's a great way to put it. Yet the aloneness that Jesus felt on that cross. I think we see that not only in the darkness and in Psalm 69. I think we also see it when Jesus refers to him as my God. Everywhere else in Matthew's gospel, it's been Father, my Father. This is the one and only time he refers to him as my God. Jesus never ceased to be God, and I want to be clear on that. But apparently, his fellowship with the Father was broken. And what that all looks like underneath the surface, even David and I don't agree on and wrestle with all the time because we're trying to understand things that we'll probably never truly understand. But there was a darkness and an aloneness that Jesus felt on that cross. And I think these theological struggles of what it was like for the Son of God to die on a cross and the feelings and the events that took place are something we really do struggle with theologically. For instance, if Jesus was with God in the beginning of creation, John 1.1, and is therefore is eternal. And if he has no beginning and he has no end, he is the Alpha and the Omega in Revelation 22.13, then how can he die on a cross? There are many things we wrestle with in trying to understand the way that the Godhead works that we just have to say, someday I'll understand fully. But for now, I'm just going to take it for what God has given me to understand. But there was this aloneness. The second reason I believe Matthew is recording this quote is because, like we previously mentioned, he wants to tie this into another Old Testament passage. Another one that speaks about the Messiah. It may also be why he records the sour wine and vinegar and even the reference to Elijah, but I really want to focus on one psalm in particular. It's a messianic psalm that speaks about uh, Jesus as about a person, an anointed one, a Messiah. And I want you to read along with me, and you're going to have to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 22 because it's too much to put up on the screen here. Psalm 22. And I want you to see how many hyperlinks you can find between our passage in Matthew and Psalm 22. Because I think that it's very clear that we're being drawn back to this passage. Psalm 22. So we had the phrase with Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, yet I have no rest. But you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our ancestors trusted in you. They trusted and you rescued them. They cried to you and were set free. They trusted in you and were not disgraced. But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him since he takes pleasure in him. It was you who brought me out of the womb, making me secure at my mother's breast. I was given over to you at birth, and you have been my God from my mother's womb. Don't be far from me. Because distress is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong ones of Bashan encircle me. They open their mouths against me, lions mauling and roaring. I am poured out like water. All my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of the earth. For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all of my bones. And people look and stare at me. They divided my garments among themselves. And they cast lots for my clothing. But you, Lord, don't be far from, 
far away. My strength, come quickly to help me. Rescue my life from the sword, my only life from the power of these dogs. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. And you answered me, and I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you in the assembly. You who fear the Lord, praise him, and all you descendants of Jacob, honor him, and all you descendants of Israel, revere him. For he has not despised or abhorred the tormented of the oppressed. He did not hide his face from him, but listened to him when he cried to him for help. I will give praise in the great assembly because of you. I will fulfill my vows before those who fear you. The humble will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. And the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And the families of nations will bow down before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules the nations. And all who prosper on earth will eat and bow down. Those who go down to the dust will kneel before him, even the one who cannot preserve his life. Their descendants will serve him. The next generation will be told about the Lord, and they will come and declare his righteousness to a people yet to be born. They will declare what he has done. I don't know how many references you can pack into one passage, but it's almost as if Matthew is scripting the details of his account to Psalm 22. There are those that mock me and say, if God does show favor to you, let him rescue you. Direct quotes. The casting of lots for his clothes. The being sneered, people shaking their heads. The, the wording is all throughout this passage. I can count all my bones. They pierced my hands and my feet. And then at the end, you notice there will be victory and all the nations will bow down to him. Hang on to that thought of all of the nations will bow down to him. And while this is a very grueling and desperate psalm, it's ultimately a psalm of victory. Death and the enemies will not win the war. They will be defeated and God's anointed one will rule. Matthew is very specific details of these events are meant to continue that theme that he started in chapter 1 to show us that Jesus is the fulfillment of all scriptures about the Messiah. He is the Messiah. And what happened to him was predicted by the, by the psalmist, by the prophets, by the law and the prophets, the Old Testament. And after he gets done with this whole scene and Jesus crying out, Matthew continues and just says, and Jesus gave up his spirit. That's an interesting phrase. He also cried out with a loud voice, which by the way, would be very uncommon for someone just about to die in a crucifixion. Because when you were hanging on a cross, you would die from asphyxiation. You couldn't breathe. So to cry out in a loud voice was not something you would do. I'm sure that many people hanging on that cross would, would try to say all sorts of things to the people who put him there. Probably not very pleasant. But Jesus did not do that. Instead, there were several things he said on the cross that Matthew totally omits, covered in other Gospels. He focuses on one and then said Jesus gave up his spirit. Now, two of the gospel authors use that phrase, Jesus gave up his spirit, and two others just say that he breathed his last. It could be uh, a literal, uh, it could just mean that he, he died, that his spirit left him, that he was done physically. It could also be a literal fulfillment of John 10, 18. Um, let me give you this verse here. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. So he has this authority to lay down his life, to give up his life. And so when it says that he gave up his spirit, it could be a direct connection to this, what he had taught in, in John's gospel of Jesus being willing to give up his spirit, his life. And immediately after this happens, Matthew gives us some things that take place. Now, some of them are a little bit weird. Okay, I'm gonna, um, some of them take place, there's like dead bodies coming out of the grave and appearing, but that happens after the resurrection. Matthew kind of, you know, Matthew and timelines, they just don't go together. So Matthew kind of throws in the post-resurrection stuff right in with the crucifixion. So we're going to kind of scoot those verses to a little bit later on when we cover the resurrection. Um, hopefully we'll be able to bring those verses back in. So I want to focus on uh, verse 51, and then we're going to skip a couple of verses here. So suddenly, the curtain of the sanctuary was torn 
in two from the top to the bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. Now the word suddenly here in Matthew's gospel is the same word look. He does this all the time. Look, this took place. Um, you couldn't see the curtain of the sanctuary from Golgotha. So even though he used the word look, you couldn't actually see it. So Golgotha's on one side of the city, and then there's the walls. The temple's on the other side of the city, and the curtain would be inside the temple. So you couldn't see it, per se, but he wanted you to notice that this took place. Jesus' death at 3 o'clock, and, and so Matthew, I said, he doesn't pay attention to timelines, and yet he's very specific about times of these particular events. It was three o'clock in the afternoon, and that would coincide with the time of the, of the um, afternoon sacrifices. Thus, the priests were present in the temple when the curtain was torn. The curtain of the sanctuary separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. And according to the Mishnah, it was 60 feet long, 30 feet wide, and as thick as a man's palm. It was so heavy that it took 300 men to lift it when it was wet. Wow. That it was torn from the top to the bottom showed that it was torn by God, and this signified that Jesus' death granted sinners new access to God. Now I want you to imagine being one of the priests who knew that Jesus was being sentenced to death and he's on the cross on the other side of the city. You're performing sacrifices in the temple and this massive 30 by 60 by 6 or 8 inch thick curtain is just torn from the top to bottom. There's an earthquake. There's been darkness for three hours. Now there's this earthquake and this curtain just rips in half right in front of you. How afraid would you be at that point. That curtain was what protected you from being in the very presence of God and being snuffed out at any moment by being in the holiness of God without going through the proper sacrifices. If you were a priest at that temple at that time, I don't know if, I don't know if I'd run and hide. I don't know if I would just like get on the ground and just start confessing every sin I could think of to, to God and, and hope that he wouldn't strike me dead. I don't know what I would do. I'd just be in a panic at that point. Terrifying event. It's a terrifying event. How do you explain it? But this event shows that there's now no barrier between the people and God. And to fully understand that, you kind of have to zoom back to Genesis. And you have to think about what took place in the garden. Man had an unhindered relationship, man and woman, had an unhindered relationship with God in the garden. And then they sinned, and God cast them out of the garden, out of his presence, lest they also eat from the tree of life. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and disobeyed God, and they were removed. And Cain is removed even further away because of his sin, and man kept moving further and further and further away from God to the point where he did a whole reset of the earth, right? The flood. And then later on, they continued to try to be God and to, to basically throw things in God's face. And they build the Tower of Babel and God scatters their languages from there as well. The evil and the violence continues. But God says, I won't wipe people out. But God still desired to have relationship with mankind. So what did he do? After he rescued the Israelites from Egypt after the Passover... He got them into the wilderness. He gave them instructions for setting up a tabernacle, a portable temple that they could take from place to place where God's presence would dwell and God's glory would dwell among the people. And he gave them laws that they could practice and sacrifices to make so that they, at least one of them, once a year, could go into the very presence of God. The rest of us wouldn't be worthy. It's that one high priest once a year. And even when he went in, they would tie a rope to his ankle and bells on his tassels so that if he went in and he had sin in his life and God struck him dead, they could still pull the body out because they couldn't go in to get him, right? How terrifying would that be? I don't want that job, right? Yeah, okay, is that rope, is that rope tight, guys? Um, yeah, no, I don't want that. From the tabernacle, we end up in the temple after David conquered Jerusalem and made it the city of, of God. And he 
his son Solomon built the temple and God's presence dwelled there. And again, the high priest could go in. The temple was destroyed and then rebuilt, rebuilt even bigger. And that's the temple we have at Jesus' time where God's presence would dwell. And once a year, one man could go in, the high priest, by following the law. All this time, God had been pursuing people to provide a way for us to be near him. And now, the curtain's gone. There is direct access for every child of God to go directly to the throne of grace, to go directly to their Heavenly Father. This is a game changer for all of mankind. And it's the closest we have of getting back to that garden ideal of being in true fellowship with the Father. The old sacrifices were done and once a year a single person could go in. However, God made a new and permanent way for us to have access to him through the sacrifice of his son, his only son, the lamb without blemish. And it's the fulfillment of the tabernacle because something greater than the tabernacle is here. It's the fulfillment of Exodus. It's the fulfillment of the law. It's the fulfillment of Abraham offering his son Isaac on the altar. It's what all of these signs, the the darkness, the veil being torn in front of them, the earthquake, all these things were, were meant to show us that God is doing something amazing here through the sacrifice of his son. And you would think that the chief priest who saw all this would think, oh, what have we done? What have we done? However, they did not come to that conclusion. As a matter of fact, it's evident later on that they didn't feel that way at all because their main concern is going to be protecting the tomb so somebody doesn't steal the body and have these rebels continue on in their little party over there. They they don't see any of this as being proof that Jesus is the Son of God. So after all these things, You have Jesus being flogged. You have him being taken into the private quarters with the soldiers and and being mocked. You have him going down through the streets with Simon carrying his cross. He ends up at the place of the skull and he's crucified with criminals on both sides. And people come by and they're, they're wagging their heads and they're spitting on him and they're calling him names and they're saying, if you're the son of God, do this. Tempting him to fulfill what would be right for what would be right for him, but would be wrong because it wouldn't be the will of the Father that he submitted to in the garden. There's an, he cries out in desperation. There's darkness over the land. He cries out. He gives up his spirit. There's an earthquake. There's rocks splitting. The temple veil is torn. And I want us to end this section in verse 54. And when the centurion and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they were terrified. And they said, truly this man was the son of God. We end up back with the soldiers, which is where we started in the first place. The ones who scourged and mocked and crucified Jesus, the one who gambled for his clothes, the ones who crowned him king and made a sign for him. And what is their response? They look at the things and they go, this was God's son. The religious leaders did not come to that conclusion. We don't know if the crowds came to that conclusion. But the Roman soldiers, the Gentiles, the nations did. And I believe this is part of the message that Matthew's trying to get across. Jesus wanted to be king of the Jews, but they would not accept him. He is the king of the Jews, whether they accept him or not but they rejected him as king. The Gentiles, however, were willing to accept him as king. Though they were far from God, they were able to recognize Jesus as God. Jesus was more than a king of the Gentiles, um, and he was more of a king of the Gentiles than a king of the Jews, though he was king of both. So I want to take you back to a passage that we read one verse from, now that we've looked at this Gentile nation thing. And I want to go back and look at some context to John chapter 10. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. 
just as the Father knows me. And I know the Father. I lay down for my, my life for the sheep. But I have other sheep that are not from this sheep pen. And I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock and one shepherd. And this is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I receive this command from my Father. Did you notice the reference to other sheep? I have other sheep that are not from this flock, and I must rescue them as well. I must bring them into the sheepfold so that there can be one flock with one shepherd. I have my own sheep, but I also have these other sheep. Jesus' message has been that he came to die for the sins of all mankind and to redeem all of mankind, not just the Jews. It never has been just about the Jews, but the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews were called out to be God's people that would point people to him so that all the nations could be blessed through Abraham's descendants. But Jesus came to die for the sins of all people, all nations. And if you've been a part of the Ephesians study that just wrapped up, you're probably catching the references here of Jew, Gentile, dying for all, and seeing these themes that we've carried out throughout the book of, of Ephesians. In John 3.16, probably one of the most quoted um, scripture verses of all time, it said, for God so loved the world, right? The whole world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Matthew is obviously telling us the story of what Jesus endured, but he's choosing to do it through the lens of the Roman soldiers. He's choosing to do it through the lens of people who acknowledged him as the son of God as opposed to just the lens of those who rejected him as the son of God. And I think the story of the soldiers is very significant. Because even after all they did to Jesus, they were able to see Jesus as the Son of God. Think about that. Think about that. You can resist, and you can ridicule, and you can run from God all you want, but you are ever only one prayer away from reconciliation. I don't care what you've said about God, or what you've chosen, chosen to believe about him in a negative way. But I can assure you, you have not done anything to God worse than what these soldiers have done. And yet their eyes were open to be able to see Jesus as the Son of God. There was always hope for people to come to the Savior. It doesn't matter your past. It doesn't matter what you've done. God's forgiveness is there for all, even those soldiers. No matter how much you've tried to hurt God, he loves you more than you could ever imagine. And he's willing to forgive if we simply bow to him and surrender to him. They did, they, remember that they in this passage of the soldiers, they did all of these things to Jesus. And yet look what Jesus said to them as he hung on the cross in Luke 23. Listen to this passage, Luke 23, 33. When they arrived at the place of the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. And then Jesus said, Father, forgive them. He's talking to these people, the soldiers included. Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots. Father, forgive them. Jesus knew what they did and what they were going to do, and he chose to give up his life for them so that he could be, they could be a part of his flock. And Jesus knows what you and I have done as well. And nobody's sin is so great that the sacrifice of Jesus cannot overcome it. I bring this up to you who have never surrendered your life to Jesus. By not surrendering to him each day, you choose to mock him. 
and yet he is waiting to show you forgiveness and grace if you'll simply acknowledge that he is the Son of God and that he did come to die for your sins. But I'm also sharing this message with you who are brothers and sisters in Christ already because perhaps you have believed the lie that somebody that you know is so bad or so far gone that God's love cannot reach them. And if that's the case, you need to repent of that and pray that God will reveal himself to them and that he can use you to do that, perhaps even. 1 Peter 3.18 says this, Christ suffered for, the, for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. And so at the end of our passage today, we're back in the same spot Matthew has placed us in over and over and over again. In light of what Jesus has done, what will you do with Jesus? Knowing that he can even look down at the people who have beaten him and mocked him and bowed a knee to him just out of arrogance, and he could look at them and say, forgive them, Father. And that he could hang on a cross for people like you and me to die for our sins so that we could have fellowship with the Father. Knowing what Jesus has done brings us to the point where we have to choose and we have to answer the question, what will we do with Jesus? Will we continue to mock? Or are we willing to bow down and say, truly you are the Son of God, and I surrender to you as my Lord? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your love and your grace. I thank you that you have chosen to forgive us, to sacrifice for us when there's nothing in us that's worthy. Oh Lord, forgive us for the, the times that we mock you. Forgive us for the times that we try to pretend that we're you, to do things in our own power. Father, I pray for those that are listening that don't know you yet. Father, help them to see the grace and the love and the mercy and the compassion that defines who you are as a God. That you are holy and reserve the right to judge, but that you are a compassionate God who sacrificed his own son for our sins. Father, I pray that those that don't know you would be willing to bow their knee out of respect and not out of arrogance and to acknowledge you as not only the Son of God, but acknowledge Jesus as their Savior and as their Lord. And Father, I pray that you would forgive us for the lies that we believe about others, believing that they can't be saved, that, they, that they're too far gone. Father, help us not to be like the Jews who reject their calling of being a light to the nations, but help us, Father, to be faithful, to share your love, with the nations around us so that your flock can be increased, so that your kingdom can be built, but most of all, that your name would be praised through us. Give us eyes like you have, Father, for those that don't know you. Teach us to forgive the way you forgive and to love the way you love, we pray in 